Let me pray as we come to God's word together. Our Father in heaven, we come to your word that tells us that we're weak people, and yet you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, all the strength we need. And we ask tonight you would take our weakness, the weakness of our understanding, the weakness of our love, and through your word, you'd be our teacher, that we might know strength in Christ, to love and serve him, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. So, uh, did you buy your Gareth Southgate waistcoat? Did you get it? Apparently they sold out in Marks and Spencers, the Gareth Southgate waistcoat. Because the England manager has become the nation's darling over the last couple of weeks. Oddly, isn't it? It's not the players, but the man in charge who's received the praise, the, the adulation. Although uh, those were pretty sceptical, apparently, when Gareth Southgate was appointed... He got a sort of average club record with Middlesbrough. That was his only managing experience, but of England under-21 stuff. He wasn't some sort of high flyer from Syria A or the, the foreign parts. He speaks quietly and in a sort of unassuming way. But now even his critics have to admit he's built a team. I've in press conferences, he's self-effacing. That he builds up his players and, and his other coaches when he's asked, not himself that he's a man of honour who clearly loved the lads he was managing and wanted the best for them. You see that, by the way, he, he embraced them, comforting them after their loss. Gareth Southgate has conquered a world of massive egos through humility. And that's Paul's aim in 2 Corinthians. It's the third or fourth letter he's written to this church in Corinth, a church of massive egos. A church that Paul had founded, but now thought that, well, the Apostle Paul, he's not really up to much. I mean, his, his speaking, it's not that impressive. He's, he's not been trained like the great orators around us. The record of his life, it seems to involve quite a lot of suffering rather than success. And the failure that he has to demand a big salary, well, that just shows you how much his ministry is really worth. They, they prefer to listen to the, the new super-apostles, the hyper-apostles around them. They were the self-declared new experts. Their, their oratory raised the roof. Their lives raised expectation that, that if you're a Christian, you can expect comfort and healing and wealth and security and ease. And their wages raised the need for another whip round every Sunday. Now, now last week, we, we saw the Corinthians, Paul playing the Corinthians really at their own game. He very reluctantly did some boasting, boasting in his own weakness. And it took us to, to the heart of the shape of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Well-known verses. Look with me to chapter 12 and verse 9. Paul talks about how he cried to the Lord to take some thorn, some struggle from him. And then he says, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul says that, that's the heart of what I'm about as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about me seeing that there's nothing I can do. I am weak. And in that weakness, finding that God's grace, his undeserved love for me in Jesus, that is my true strength. 
if you're not a Christian here tonight, that's the key thing you need to understand about Christianity. Christianity begins and ends by seeing that you're a weak person, a person who in yourself cannot be the person you want to be, let alone the person God calls you to be. And yet out of his great love, his grace towards you, he has given his one and only son that you can admit your weakness, depend on Christ, and find all the strength that you need to live life. Not just now, but forever, with God in a perfect new creation. And it's that shape of life that Paul is talking about as he ends the letter, because in some ways he summarizes what he's been saying. And we're going to see two things tonight. He's going to call the Corinthians to recognize true ministry, the shape of his ministry. And then he's going to end by saying, how do we respond to true ministry? So this could be another list of things that you could assess me or other church leaders by, but of course, as we do that, church leaders are just Christians like anyone else, so the nature of those who minister is not to be radically different from the ones they minister to. But also, as we look at this, we're to think, well, what should I do when I come under the sound of the gospel faithfully preached? So here's the the first thing, recognizing true ministry. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul is desperate for the Corinthians to do. Look at chapter 12 and verse 11. He says, I've made a fool of myself, but, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I've been boasting like an idiot, says Paul, but you made me. I mean, you of all people in Corinth should know I'm genuine. That's because I preached the gospel to you. In fact, don't you remember verse 12? I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Don't you remember the the things I did? The the, things that, that showed that I was an apostle? You see, Paul was set apart by God when he met with the, the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he performed signs that as we look in the book of Acts and the New Testament, seem to be specifically associated with apostolic ministry in the early church, signs and wonders. But but Paul's emphasis isn't on the amazing miracles he performed. Actually, it's more on the way he performed them. Do you see how verse 12 starts? I persevered, or literally, with all endurance, with the utmost endurance, I stuck with you. So that's the first mark of true ministry here. It perseveres with people. Paul didn't give up on people. He he kept going when things were tough. He he kept going when they were tough, when they were less than cooperative. In fact, the reason that we know this is Paul's writing this letter. It's proof that he perseveres. He he visited Corinth twice. He he planted the church there. Then he had a painful second visit to, to deal with issues in the church. And on top of this, this is maybe the, the third or even the fourth letter he's written to them. Uh, we've only got two in our Bible because that's all God thought we needed. But, but the two we have are filled with a, a love that refuses to sweep the difficulties under the carpet. Paul even says he's planning to go again. Three visits, four letters. This is a man who perseveres with difficult people. He's not going to give up on the Corinthian Christians. Their relationship with Christ means he keeps going. He he goes with the utmost endurance. It's like the the same dogged persistence that kept Kevin Anderson going at 24 games all the day before yesterday till it went to 24-26. 
sadly, he clearly spent himself by this afternoon. But that perseverance, striving with all his strength. See, ministry is about other people. People God loves. People God is patient with. People God sent his son to die for. People God does not give up on. People God perseveres with. And therefore, Christian ministry should persevere with them too. So in youth work, that means keeping going with the troublemaker rather than wishing they didn't turn up this week because life would be easier. In a a life group, one of our small groups, that means following up the non-attender, not respecting their decision not to come. Uh, If you're reading the Bible one-to-one with someone, or you have a friend who you're seeking to encourage in Christ, that means pursuing that person. However many times they cancel that meeting with you at the last minute. True ministry perseveres. You see, the Corinthians had forgotten how Paul stuck with them. Do you see that in verse 13? How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. You see, that's the second mark of true Christian ministry. It doesn't burden people. That idea comes again in, in verse 14. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you. Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. Or literally, I don't seek yours, but you. Actually, burden is repeated in verse 13 and 14 and 16. Paul's not after what he can get out of the Corinthians. He doesn't want their money. He's after them for Christ. Just like a a father lays aside money for their children's inheritance. Paul says, I don't expect the church that I started to support me. I didn't when I visited you in the past, and I won't when I come in the future. Verse 15. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, would you love me less? Spend everything I have for you. I will spend myself for you. And I did it because I love you. It even looks in verse 16 like some of the people in Corinth were saying, oh, well, Paul, he's being a bit crafty here. What he's doing is he's getting his associates to take the money and then they're giving it to him. So he reminds them in verse 17, did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? Don't you remember Titus? I mean, he didn't take a a penny off you when he came. Don't Titus and I walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit, he says in verse 18? I don't want yours, your possessions. I want you for Christ. True Christian ministry doesn't burden people. If you don't love people enough to share Christ with them, not just for free, but at your own expense, don't consider Christian ministry. If you're not willing to forego foreign holidays, drive old cars, have frayed furniture, don't consider Christian ministry. If you can't see yourself shopping at little, if you're not willing to give up your savings, don't consider Christian ministry. If you're more worried about your pension than the people God's given you to love, or if you spend more time working out your expenses than praying for the people God's given to you love, stop Christian ministry. 
Uh, there was a couple that uh, we stayed with when we went to live for a year in Australia, Brian and Gwen Higginbottom. And one of the extraordinary things about them was that in one of the early pastorates Brian served in, he was a, a church pastor, in Australia the church governed what the pastor was paid and, and the church just didn't pay him enough with four kids to live. But rather than whinge and complain, Brian got a job during the night, driving lorries, delivering fruit and veg to pay for Christian ministry. It's such a contrast to some places. I've got friends who've attended Hillsong, and they say there that the, the collection's hyped up every week. There's even a little mini-sermon before the collection's taken. Sometimes the collection's taken more than once during the service. You've got some fab venues. They've got fantastic media, brilliant graphic design, a beautiful website. But you have to pay for it. No, true Christian ministry will make the gospel known at personal cost. You know, Paul made tents, didn't he? So that he didn't have to be a burden to people. And we need more people who will be tent makers, who are willing to support themselves in gospel work. But because they recognize that people hearing about Jesus is worth giving everything for, even your reputation. Because here's the third mark of Christian ministry. It values other people over reputation. Look at verse 19 with me. Do you see what Paul says? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? That that appears to be exactly what Paul's been doing. If if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know 2 Corinthians is all about Paul defending himself. But actually, he's not worried about what the Corinthians think of him. Rather, do you see what he's doing? Look at verse 19 again. He says, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For your, literally, building up. It's the same word he uses in chapter 13 and verse 10 when he says, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up. It's the only reason Paul's been defending his ministry is so that they will stick with the true gospel of Jesus he preached. So they might be built up. The only reason he writes them with a certain degree of bluntness is so that when he comes to them, they will be built up in Christ. It looks like the super apostles, well, they seem to be quite the opposite. I mean, they loved it when people thought that they were a success. And they uh, changed the message, so they, they ended up with more praise, more smiling followers, so that they were a little bit more popular. They didn't mind the odd lie if it got them liked. But Paul cares too much about people to do that. It's all about them being built up. A friend of mine very wisely said this to me. He, he was talking about how in ministry it's danger that you want the people around you to see you're a success. And he said, if you have a performance-based ministry, speaking to me personally, you'll come to despise the people God has given you to love. Do you know why? People never perform. If ministry is about me looking good, I'll grow to hate you because you won't turn up all the time. And I'll look bad sometimes. But if I'm going to love you, then it has to be about me being in the background. Nothing about me. Everything about you. That, that's Paul's attitude. There's actually, I didn't see, if you, um, if you read the uh, Telegraph, um, Lord have mercy upon me if you're a Guardian reader, but if you do read the Telegraph, yep, 
Uh, yesterday was an article about how the Church of England trainee priests face tests to weed out narcissism. Apparently, this issue of wanting to be someone is so much a problem in the Church of England that uh, they're going to have a special test to spot the narcissist, the person who wants to be a minister so that everyone looks at them and thinks they're great. It's not actually just the Church of England. US and Canadian researchers concluded that more than 30% of ministers in mainstream Protestant churches in Canada met the criteria for the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. You can come and tell me if I meet the diagnosis afterwards. That, that passion to have power so you can lord it over others. But that's the opposite of the Apostle Paul. Did you notice the tenderness of his words in verse 19? He, he talks about them as dear friends. Literally, it's beloved. Everything we do, beloved, is for building you up. Everything we do for you. Now, that's love, isn't it? Puts itself down and values others above yourself. I've been privileged to be on the ministry of people like that. When I, when I first became a Christian, um, I was a spiritual disaster zone. And a lovely guy called Mark Ruston pursued me with the book of Philippians and fruitcake. He, he read the Bible with me each week. Um, he, he was in his uh, late 60s, just turning 70. And Mark was a classic background guy. Uh, before me, he'd read the Bible with a guy who was a complete nightmare as well. He used to stub out his cigarette on Mark's doorstep before going in to read with him. It's a guy called William Taylor, who's now vicar of St. Helens Bishopsgate. The thing is that what I didn't realize about Mark was that this was the last six months of his life. He was dying of cancer. Uh, as, a, as a young man, I didn't even notice. Everyone else said it was obvious. But he just wanted to be in the background. All he cared about was other people hearing of Jesus. Even when I visited him in hospital in the December before he died in the January, he was saying, oh, maybe in the new year you could drive me to, to give a talk at one of those school Christian unions that, that I go to. Not a lot of people, just so people can hear about Jesus. Now, that's Paul's attitude to the Christians. He values other people over himself and his reputation. And specifically, he values their godliness. Here's the next mark of true Christian ministry. It fears for your godliness. You know, a lot of the time, what we're afraid of is, is largely about us. You know, sometimes in my better moments, I worry about my children. Sometimes I worry about my church. But a lot of my fears have one thing in common. They're fears about me and what affects me. But, but look at what Paul fears in verse 20. For I'm afraid that when I come... I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Paul's fear is that there'll be sin continuing in the Corinthian church in a way that's unaddressed. Uh, the list he gives here crops up in lots of his letters. It seems to be Paul's summary of living as though you're not a Christian. It's a life of broken relationships, of, of losing your temper, of wanting your own comfort, of talking about people when they're not around, of thinking you're right and they're wrong. And he knows if he finds the Corinthians like that, he won't be happy, and they won't be happy with him when he's forced to challenge them. So he says, verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier 
and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. See, Paul's challenged them about those things in the past. He visited them and he's written to them, but he's still afraid. Humility and grief. That's, that's Paul's heart response to their ongoing sin. Humility because he's going to be humbled by God as he sees that his ministry in the past actually hasn't produced the results he longed for. Grieved because his heart is that people would live to honor Jesus. You see, we need ministry that takes our relationship with Jesus so seriously that it has an emotional response to where we are with Christ. It fears for us. It's humbled when, when it fails to help us. It grieves over our sin. The opposite of ministry like that is indifference or self-righteousness that, that says, well, I can't believe they're not doing what I told them, or pride that says, well, at least I don't make those mistakes. That's not Paul. He's grieved, saddened for them. I've been humbled, actually, recently as I've met with people who, because of love for brothers and sisters, have actually wept over their sin. Meeting with a, a guy who was discipling someone who repeatedly refused to repent of sexual sin. And as I sat dry-eyed on one side of the desk and he wept over his brother on the other side, I just prayed that the Lord would move my heart with a similar tenderness. You see, if we have the privilege of ministering the gospel to others, whether that's in Friendship Club tomorrow or in in Fusion Youth Group, whether that's leading a life group or, or preaching, we need to pray that our hearts would, would be so deeply involved in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ that, that if they're lost to him, we'd be fearful. If they're unrepentant in sin, we'd be fearful for them. If they're half-hearted in following Christ, we'd be fearful for them. That, that we'd be saddened if they're not living for the Lord. Saddened enough to take action in humility Because here's the last mark of true Christian ministry. It's what Paul says he's going to do. He's going to act with power, the power of weakness. Look at 13 and verse 1. Paul says, This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul's letter is preparing the way for him to go to them again. And it might be simply as he tells them of his visit here, what he's doing is, is reminding them of the principle from, from the Old Testament that was necessary if you were going to discipline anyone in the church. He didn't just go on the evidence of one person. There needed to be two or three people that saw this sin and, and challenged you. It, it might be that Paul's reminding them that actually he's already visited them, one witness, written to them already, two witnesses, and the visit he's coming up will be the, the third witness In other words, the time for talking about their sin, and especially this issue of unrepentant sexual sin, has come to an end. Now's the time to act. Verse 2, I've already given you a warning when I was with you a second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Paul says, you you want evidence that Jesus is working in me? 
well, look at how seriously I'm going to take your sin. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not, I'm not going to let it pass. How does weak little old Paul have, have the authority? How can anyone have the authority to challenge someone else about the way they live their lives? I mean, that's totally against our culture, isn't it? Our culture says, you live your life as you want, I live my life as I want, and for so help us God, let no one dare to tell anyone else what to do. But, but Paul says, no, I have the right to do that, because my ministry is like Christ's. Look at verse 4 with me. For to be sure... He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. I mean, no one has ever looked as as weak as Jesus did on the cross. Hanging, apparently helpless, nailed to a piece of wood, mocked by his opponents, dying slowly in excruciating pain. Helpless, weak. But no one has ever been more alive than the risen Lord Jesus, the one who on the cross defeated sin, the the one who then ascended to heaven, the one who now powerfully rules creation and builds his church, the one who is at work in our lives even tonight. You see, that's what Paul says his ministry is like. Verse 4 again, likewise we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him In our dealing with you. Oh you might think I'm weak says Paul. Yes I'm totally dependent upon God. Yes I'm I'm not an impressive sort of guy. Yes in the world's eyes. Well maybe you can easily look down on me. But because I trust in Christ. I will risk rejection. I will risk hatred. And I will address the sin in my brothers and sisters. You see, it's it's broken people. It's people who know they're weak. People who know they're actually incapable of changing anyone else who the Lord Jesus Christ can work powerfully through. It's as we see our helplessness that Christ works in us to deal with others. It's as we see that we can't change people, but he can, by his spirit, through his word, that he does change people. And that's what Paul's going to do. He's going to act amongst them. True Christian ministry will always address issues in the church, humbly in weakness, trusting in the power of God to work as God worked through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 2 Corinthians has been a a defense. And the reason that Paul has defended his ministry is not for his sake, but for theirs. As we think about what true Christian ministry is, at the heart of it is this repeated phrase that comes all through our section. Verse 14, Paul says, not to be a burden to you. Verse 15, he said, I have spent my life for you. I love you. Verse 16, not to be a burden to you. Verse 19, for your strengthening. In the end, true Christian ministry gives up life for the sake of others, relationship with Christ. Because that is what Jesus has done for us. He is the one who has given up everything for us, out of love for us. He became weak so that we might become strong. 
He became poor so that we might become rich. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became the one who experienced God's wrath so that we might only know God's blessing now and forever. Ministry that wants to serve Christ will look weak and walk like Christ did. But but how do you respond to true ministry? Because that's what Paul calls them to do. Look at chapter 13 and verse 5 as we close. Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Now, we live in a world obsessed with self. In fact, a lot of the time we spend examining ourselves. Sometimes we examine ourselves in the mirror, or sometimes we examine ourselves in the mirror of other people's lives. And we're trying to feel good about self. But but the sort of examining ourselves Paul is talking about here, we very rarely do. This is examining yourself when someone has challenged you or told you something that you don't want to hear, that you don't like. You see, that's what Paul has done to the Corinthians. He's challenged them about living for the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't like it. So rather than examining themselves, they spent a lot of time examining Paul. And they decided the problem was with him. And now as he ends the letter, Paul says, no, no, my ministry is genuine. And you need to examine yourself. Did you see the series of the examination? To see whether you're in the faith. To see if you are a genuine follower of Jesus. He reminds them his desire for them is not about him seeing to succeed, but but their success. Do you see that in verse 7? Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. Paul doesn't want them to examine themselves for his sake. No, he wants them to live a relationship with Christ wholeheartedly, even if he has to look a total failure as a result. But what does examining yourself look like? Well, as Paul ends the letter, there's actually a set of commands in verse 11. This is what he says. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, Encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Rejoice, he says. Examining yourself will mean looking, am I rejoicing in the gospel? Am I rejoicing in what God has done for me in Jesus? Strive to be restored, literally restored in relationship with Christ. Earlier in the letter, Paul said to them, be reconciled to God through Christ. Examining yourself will mean looking to Christ for your relationship with God. Encourage one another is literally be encouraged. Examining yourself will mean accepting God's word so that you're strengthened in following Christ. Be of one mind here is literally set your mind on the same thing. On the gospel of Christ. That's where the Christian is to look. And live in peace with each other. That the peace of God that comes through Christ. 
Did you see the funny thing about a Christian examining themselves? When a Christian examines themselves, they don't end up looking at themselves. They end up looking to Jesus. He is the heart of our rejoicing. He is the one who restores our relationship with God and each other. He is the one who encourages us. He is the source of our unity. He is the one who gives us peace. You see, examining yourself here isn't like taking a GCSE. You know, test yourself to see if you're, you're good enough, possibly to pass the Christianity exam. No, examining yourself is like checking the ropes before you go abseiling down the cliff, testing their strength, seeing if they'll hold you. Are you strapped into the harness? Is it secure? Because without them, you have no hope. Now, that's Paul's aim in verse 5, to see whether they're in the faith, whether they are trusting Jesus. It's not about how strong they are. No, the whole of 2 Corinthians has been about admitting how weak you are but how strong Christ is. True Christian self-examination, in the end, will always throw you back to Jesus. So where are you looking this evening? Where has God been challenging you to examine yourself? Where over the last few weeks, maybe, is he putting his finger on an area of your life where his word is biting you? Are you going to examine yourself? And be thrown back to Jesus? Because it's depending on Jesus where this letter famously ends. You'll know verse 14 well. You might not necessarily have known where it comes from. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, when we examine ourselves, we go back to the grace of Jesus. The gift of the death of Jesus that makes us right before God. We we go back to the love of God, given to us though we don't deserve it. A love which can change our heart so we love him and others. We we go back to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. the, The very Spirit of God who binds us to himself and binds us to each other. That's where Paul wants the Corinthians to go. Not to him. Not to celebrate his ministry. Not even to remember the great apostle. He wants them to go back to Jesus and the grace of God in Christ. That's where faithful ministry will always take you. And that's where we're going to go to now. Because we're going to gather around the table. And the table is all about those three things. It's about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we come to eat bread and drink wine, we're remembering that Christ gave himself for us a gift that we don't deserve, grace. It's about the love of God. The only reason that the cross happened was because God set his love on us. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it's about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word communion is really just a word for fellowship. Our relationship, fellowship with God, because his spirit, if we trust in Christ, has bound our sin to Jesus as he died on the cross. Christ became sin for us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we might become the righteousness of God. And the same spirit then binds us to one another. We come round a table together, because we're in relationship with Jesus 
and relationship with each other. But before we come to the table, what we need to do is admit our weakness. Not, not just our accidental weakness, but our deliberate sinful weakness in rejecting the Lord. So I wonder if you'd turn with me to, to Psalm 51 or look it up on your phone app. I'm going to say some words of King David, great King David, who was a force to admit his weakness before God when the Lord challenged him about his sin. We're going to say together Psalm 51, verse 1 to 12 in a moment. And in saying this, we're admitting that we are those who are weak and we need to depend upon the gracious love of a God who is strong. Weak in our disobedience, weak in our sin, weak to change. A moment's quiet just for you to look at the words we're going to say together and then we'll read Psalm 51 verses 1 to 12.